It's September 1761, late Sunday evening. An old Italian priest makes his way up the steps of a large, newly constructed wooden platform in Lisbon's Rosio Square, where his executioner will loop his garret around his neck. For Father Gabriel Malagrida, the 72-year-old Jesuit missionary, the festives had begun at 7 in the morning when he was pulled out of his prison cell, his black woolen robe of his order, and delivered to what was left of the enclosure of the nearby monastery of Sao Domingos. There, the once favor of the monarch stood in the presence of the king. His ministers and the Portuguese court accused of being a traitor and a heretic, while being stripped of his priestly functions. And in keeping with the tradition of the Inquisition, he was also forced to don a pointed cardboard mitre, a long gray linen sack decorated with demonic images and flames of hellfire. Once the sentence has passed, he began his final journey through the streets of the capital. In his company, a pair of Benedict monks, two attendants, and over 50 prisoners of the regime to meet his climactic end to this forsaken day. For a man who once faced death before, years ago, in the sweltering jungles in Brazil, the Portugal that Father Gabriel had returned to was worse. It was 11 years before this modest barefooted priest from the Brazilian outback entered Lisbon, hailed as a living saint for his mission work. Being received by the half-paralyzed king, Joao V, he had become a celebrity, followed by the crowds of people, performing spiritual exercises with the queen and her ladies-in-waiting, who even encouraged the king to repent for his sins by constructing schools, convents, and houses in Brazil. By 1754, he would transcend his reputation by becoming the living embodiment of mysticism and theatrical religiosity. Being embraced by the new king, Jose I, and Queen Mariana Vitoria, then suddenly, something happened. On All Saints' Day, November 1st, the morning of 1755, something occurred that changed the trajectory of not only his life, but also that of the Portuguese Empire. On today's episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends, we'll be wrenching back to 1755, at the height of the Portuguese Empire, and look at the earthquake that shook the empire and the world. Hey guys, welcome to a new episode of Conversation Before the World Ends. I'm your host, Kareem. And I'm Eamon. So a lot of things happened in February. A lot of destruction. The earthquakes, yeah. So. Yeah, the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey. What happened in, um, what's happening in Palestine the last few days with the Israeli army attacking Nablus. Yep, once again. Mm-hmm. You had also the train wreckage in East Palestine in Ohio. Yep. And again in Nebraska. It's crazy. So there's a lot of uh, problems happening in the world. It never stops, does it? never stops. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to tackle today was since the earthquake happened in Syria and Turkey and what we could learn or 
of course this conversations uh, you forgot uh shooting down a balloon oh yeah yeah and of course the of course balloon. the weather balloon that got shot down and the comedy to disrupt all the sadness <laughs> yeah um the best thing about the whole thing is how china was like um Can you please give back the balloon? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to the United States, to like, you probably spent a shitload yeah, on it. Like, did listen, yeah, that did was. Did you see the picture of it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. To think that, but it's, inter- it's interesting. They use a balloon to carry a satellite to so go under the radar. So it's interesting, and also the way the balloon works is that it moves with wind, but it's also in a weird way controlled movement through wind. Yeah, it's fascinating technology. Yeah. It's so simple yet effective. Yeah. Yeah. Um but then they shot out two other balloons that turned out to be just hobby weather balloons. Balloons, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, point, yeah. With with the going back to the earthquake, I was reading articles on how a lot of the problems with the earthquake, especially why the death toll is so big was because of the foundations of buildings were so weak that they couldn't sustain earthquake damage. Yeah, it's so weak to the point where in Turkey it's it's a given fact that they have earthquake insurance. Yeah, yeah, Turk, because Turkish housings, uh, you sign in within your thing. There's earthquake insurance because they know earthquakes are common and their infrastructure isn't meant to support. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a given over there almost. Yeah, and not talking about like, and also given the fact that Syria is ripe with corruption. Yeah, yeah. so a lot of people take shortcuts to build houses and buildings yeah. and yeah. Sits. cut costs. Exactly. Of course, it's always at the expense of the people. For sure. So that got me thinking about the topic of what well, other earthquakes in the past have. Um, can I? Can you hear me? Yeah, breathing? I can hear you breathing. <laughs> There's a lot of walking. Okay, so it's fine. I hold my breath. It's fine. It's I fine. hold my breath. No, it's fine. I hold my it's breath. It's fine. It's fine. No, no, it's fine. I'm sorry. The audience don't <laughs> breathe. What else do you want me to do? Not breathe. Don't don't give your opinion. Don't talk. Don't breathe. <laughs> Anyways. So what other earthquake that has happened in the past has kind of also been where the death toll has been so like huge to the point where it had to impact the world into changing the way the world works. Um, one of them, of course, and I think it's one of the only times where Portugal is always talked about in history because it's, I don't think it's, the kind, it's almost a forgotten empire to history, Portugal. And people forget that the Portuguese empire was a big I empire. Mean, Latin America is pretty much Portuguese. Portuguese, yeah. Empire. So another thing that always gets, uh, like people talking about the Lisbon or uh, Portugal is the, is the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, which I'm pretty sure you've heard of. I don't think I did. No? You've never heard of the 1755 Lisbon earthquake? Maybe as you talk, something will click, but for now, nothing's clicking. So my first awareness of the 1755 was from Moonspell's album, 1755, ah. which is a concept album on the earthquake and ah. its impact. Yeah, I remember. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's my first See exposure. how metal helps. So I thought it would be good today to cover 1755 port- earthquake in Portugal mm-hmm. to, in, a, in a way to understand how response happens to earthquakes. And to see whether its response, how it changed or impacted the world moving forward. Mm-hmm. And also it helps us to raise awareness to earthquakes that's mm-hmm. happening. Um, today, for a call of action, I think it's best that I'm going to drop uh, some charities for people who want to donate for the earthquake cause. Because I think... charities as yeah. well, yeah. So, don't worry about so I made some research on legit charities that... Yeah. I'm going to drop it down in the description. So if you the links and everything. 
so if you guys want to go and help and support and then then add it on the social media pages yeah and on the social media we're gonna social media and on the social media page we're gonna add it as well so let's kick things off amen part one queen of the seas okay so if there's one thing the royal portuguese family loved more than hunting and sleeping around it was music. Uh, for four decades, the royals ha- would bring the best of the European singers, dancers, and musicians. But Portuguese by- royals? Yeah, yeah. But by 1740, King... No, no. <laughs> no, 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 don't worry. It's early. No, no, it's, not, it's fine, it's fine. King Joao V suffered a stroke. Joao. Yeah, a stroke which he believed was caused by his debaucherous life. So he forbade music in Portugal. That's a weird chain of events. Yeah. yeah. And as a composer in Bologna would put it, and I quote, he wants to force people to become saints. So 10 years later uh, of this religious uh, banning of music, the king passed away. And his son, Jose, Jose. or Jose, started to bring back the, the glory of music. And this was spearheaded by the construction of a new opera house near the Riverside Palace which was completed in the spring of 1755. It was called Lisbon's Casa de Opera, which was a marvel to behold. Um, writers would complain that it was so magnificent that it would distract audiences from the actual play because they're too oh, busy wow. looking around. It's like properly spent on, properly yeah. spent on it. Portugal, for the longest time, was criticized that for a country that was so wealthy, they didn't really have a Versailles or a Vienna, you know what I mean, where the monarchs would like... Like for an empire, they didn't have a entertainment hub. Yeah, or they didn't have like such a wow palace that like, you know, like a Versailles where like people could go and walk in the gardens of Versailles and stuff I got like you, that. I got you, yeah. And it was considered a superpower then. Yeah, yeah it was considered a superpower. So on March 1755, during the Queen's 38th birthday, they planned an evening of an opera. The opera was going to be Alexander in India, which was performed. And like Alexander, the king was known for his extensive global empire as well. So where Alexander boasted that he conquered three continents in the opera, the king of Portugal was pleased to say that he was at the center of four continents, which they controlled. Lisbon being the queen of the sea. Continents Africa, the Americas. Africa, America. And Asia? Africa and Asia. Okay, so they were in Asia too. Yeah. Uh, they conquered part- Calcutta was a Portuguese. Uh, yeah. yeah, true, true. Yeah. So how did Portugal get to this point in time? Right? How did they become so big? Uh, after two and a half centuries, the storehouses along the Tagus River was filled with peppers from India, sugars from Pernambuco, uh, spices from Indonesia, porcelain and, ch- and silk from China and Japan, rugs from Persia, and golds and rare gems from Brazil. By 1755, Lisbon was rivaling Paris, Vienna, and London. And with the Opera House... It was becoming also the cultural hub. Uh, this is where f- priests and Jesuits would also like consider Lisbon to be the new Babylon because they were saying that it's going to start to become more decadent. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, the only image we have of, of the opera house uh, are only in sketches, so we don't really know how it actually looked like. There's no remains left. For a while, it was only bricks and mortar f- that was left, shattered walls, and had clumps of vegetations like some Roman forum, okay? So once the earthquake hit, the opera house looked something like a Roman ruin. I'm looking up the opera house. It was like rubbles. Yeah. <laughs> and like Rome, Lisbon also traced its roots to the aftermath of the Trojan War when it was Odysseus who was trying to find new lands or trying to find the Garden of the Nymphs landed on Lisbon. 
uh the yeah, name it was a big part of uh, the odyssey yeah lisbon, yeah so that's that's end of the known world was lisbon according you, to yeah, yeah, yeah i think it's called hercules's corridor if i'm not mistaken mm. um the name lisbon a latinized word of odysseus which become ulysses so you can see how it came from ulysses to lispo to lisbon mm-hmm. the city remained an obscure one archaeologists found that there was cave paintings that dated back to 40,000 years ago in portugal i think for cultivated crops and formations of settlements dated back to 3000 BCE. So it was uh, rich in history. Yeah, uh, 1000 BCE, the Celts would sweep across the land, they would raid it. Um, then uh, after that, of course, 200 years after, you'd have the Phoenician, sorry, 200 years before, you had the Phoenician sailors travel from Levant. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would start exchanging salt, silver, tin, and copper with the native Lisbons, Lisbonians. Lisbonians? Maybe. Uh, the Greeks would later take it Lis- over. Lisbonites. Lisbonites. The Greeks would later take it over, and only for the Carthaginians to take it over after that, which of course would later be taken over by the Romans. Um, therefore, Lisbon, also called at that point Olisipio, uh, became a far-flung Western outpost, the new Roman province. By 17th, by 713 AD, it came under the control of the Muslims and the Moors. Over the next four centuries, a small Moorish minority would reign peacefully over a larger Christian population and a tiny Jewish presence in Lisbon as well. Pretty uh, central hub of cultures. And yeah, so it had like a lot dynasties, of... Yeah. yeah. So at that time, the city of Lisbona, the Moors helped Portugal's future because they started establishing nautical schools mm. to learn on how to sail. One thing the Moors brought or the Muslims brought with them was advanced knowledge in science and medicine. And mathematics. Probably. Yeah. Nautical equipment was also always consistently approved. Uh, roof chimneys, improved irrigations, brick paving, glass wall tiles, all this came under the Moors. Mm-hmm. Uh, which will also become that hybrid of how Portuguese and Spanish and Latin houses look like. And also the buildings would be like tiled. Like Mediterranean. Yeah. But the problem is that the Moors failed to conquer most of Portugal or what we call Iberia or Spain, Portugal and Spain. So a lot of surviving mountainous regions of the north were still fending off the Muslims and they were Christian kingdoms. Mm -hmm. So they would eventually run it over and they would restore Christianity by 1096 AD by a man called Henry of Burgundy, a French-born nobleman, and he called on every single city-state to fight off the Muslims, right? And they would take over a coastal city, which they would call Oporto, and they would name the land Portugal, which means the land of the ports. Interesting, because it was right by the sea. The sea. His son, King Alfonso... It makes so much sense, Portugal, the land Yeah, of the like if you now, if you separate and you're like Portugal... Yeah. <laughs> So then you also have then by his son, King Alfonso I, would become the new king of this land and secure, secure its independence from Spain. Eventually, in 1147, Lisbon would be captured by King Alphonse. Uh, 1249, Alfonso III would capture the southern kingdom and capture the basic, so creating that basic geographical shape of Portugal. Mm-hmm. Portugal, for the most, most part, remained like its geographical map remained the same for most of its life. Yeah, you never see that the empire... They never had like a border dispute. Mm. And for the most part, it remained isolated and somewhat weak. It was never known for its army. It's, it's tough to be right on the sea and all these ports. Between sandwiched stuff. between the sea and Spain. Yeah. Must be tough, especially with the... You're almost like the border for Spain. Exactly, yeah. Made it harder to conquer Spain. Yeah, yeah, because you have to go through Portugal. Yeah. yeah. Of course, uh, Portugal, and as like a side note, Portugal at that time would enter a treaty with England, another small maritime power at the time 
which they signed in 1373. And this is, uh, and the reason why I mention it is because it's the oldest continuous treaty to date, which, uh, which uh, benefits both Portugal, well, mostly England. It was signed in 1373. It will be continuously renewed up until today. That's hence why Portugal had to join with uh, the, Brit- the Allies in, during World War II, World War, because yeah. of this treaty from 1373. Wow, and they're still upholding it. They're still upholding it. What does Portugal get out of it? There's like free trade between them. But of course, like um, Britain taxes some of... Uh, so you know how in Portugal, or in England, port is the most famous uh, type of wine in England. Usually people drink Portuguese port wine. wine. Yep. Uh, that's because of that treaty. Um, another thing is that if you notice, a lot of English tourists go to Portugal. Yeah. And vice versa, because it's like also free. And there's a lot of a mix of Portuguese, English. English yeah, it's because of these, you know what I mean? Of course... England gets to sell textile for free, tax-free in Portugal. Portugal has to pay some sort of tax for wine. Of course, typical British treaty. Yeah. <laughs> they benefit more than they than the yeah. other party. Um, so by 1309 to, four, to 1404, Portugal had no fewer than 22 famines and 11 earthquakes. And the reason why this is the case is because Portugal is between two main tectonic plates, the African and the Eurasian. So it's literally a sandwich between the two tectonic plates. And what happens is it allows the country to get exposed to earthquakes. We'll get more into detail once we talk about the earthquake on how that works. Uh, so the two major earthquakes hitting before 1755 was 60 AD and 1531 AD. They caused immense damage. Okay. Mm, okay. It explains as well in like Turkey, it's uh, on the Euro-Asia. Tectonic plate, yeah. Yeah, it's right there too. If you think about it, it's always in places where like, for example, another one that gets affected a lot is Cyprus and Greece. Because again, it's between, wherever you find this country or these land that's somewhat in between two continents, Continents, that's where it begins to get um, messy. Yeah. Um, I think that's another reason why Haiti also. In, by 15th century, Portugal would, would have a monumentous turn of events. So the small maritime nation broke Europe out of its medieval period. And how did they do this? Because unlike most European states, Portugal found itself mostly united and more politically stable than most of its European counterparts. The time when people like England was having the Hundred Year War, the, the Hundred Year War with France, mm-hmm. you had the War of the Roses, you had the Turkish invasion of the Levant, you had the 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 invasion of the Balkans, whatever was happening with the Roman Empire at the time, trying to keep together while the Ottomans were invading. Portugal, for the most part, was kept on the side. side. And because Portugal was never really absorbed into the Spanish empires, it was able to use its time to start advancing its nautical equipment. It's almost like when there's no war, there's more advancement. Yeah, exactly. So Portugal started exploring new lands through their ships. Uh, without any problem. Which it's, was taught by the Moors. The Moors. This was inspired partly by both of the Christian zeal and the prospect of economic gain, uh, but mostly economic gain. Is Christopher Columbus Portuguese? No. Spanish? He's Italian. Yeah, but uh, he he went to Portugal to ask for money to uh, okay. expand his expedition. They rejected him. So he went to Spain and they're like, okay, we'll fund your... Okay. But he was actually Italian. Was there Portuguese... Uh, there is a Portuguese. And Ooh. not to jump the gun, Vasco okay. da Gama. Yeah, the yeah. first man to sail to India yeah, yeah, from yeah. the Horn of Portuguese, Africa. Yeah? yeah, yeah, that's why I thought there was one popular. Yeah, yeah, he's the first one. And I think Magellan... 
I feel mm. like Magellan was. Right? Let's Google that. But yeah. <laughs> but Va- I know Vasco da Gama is 100%. Yeah, but he actually went to India. He was the first one to go. Yeah. He's the one who. Unlike Christopher Columbus. He's the one who went down South Africa and to India. Ferdinand Magellan. Portuguese. Portuguese, right? That's it. Yeah. He was 1519. Yeah. And uh, Vasco da Gama was, I think, before him. He died in the Philippines, though. Yeah. He got murdered in the Philippines by the natives, which is fantastic. Vasco da Gama. <laughs> Portuguese mm-hmm. died in India. Mm-hmm. First European to reach India by sea. Exactly, he, and he went around Africa. He like he yeah. he circled. He was the first one to link Europe and Asia by an ocean route. Mm-hmm. Because he found a way to avoid the Arabs, who were or the Islamic Empire, if you will. So the Portuguese had a lot of, I guess, the nautical exactly bred some good sailors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not uh, necessarily good people, but good sailors. Yeah. yeah. So Portuguese had quote-unquote hero- heroic strides in map making course plotting and open ocean sailing mm-hmm. building upon the knowledge like you said the moors ha- had left them so this allowed them to dispatch into the atlantic uh with these new created carvals if you will uh you could unlock it in sieve by august is that, 14, is that 15, like a ship those bigger ships that rowing ships that go further okay, into okay. the ocean uh they captured the seaport of the moroccan coastline making it the first European colonization. Oh, really? When they first conquered Morocco. Interesting. You always think of Belgium. Belgium, Holland, it's always first. Portuguese. It's Portuguese. Uh, But they just got the port. They caught the port. And the main objective was gold. Europe at that time had suffered due due to lack of coinage. So they had lack of gold to make coinages. So there was lack of currency going around. Gold, for the most part, was purchased from North, the North African coasts, which Muslims had controlled the area. And they would get the gold from West Africa and, and across the Sahara. They would be mined from Sahara. The Arabs would buy them. They would sell them to Europeans. Mm-hmm. So the Arabs were the wholesalers, you know, the middlemen. Yeah, yeah. So with the middlemen and limited supply, the prices of gold soared big time of, of in, course, in, yeah. in Europe. So the Portuguese thought that if they could capture a port, they would be able to cut the middleman and find a route to the gold themselves. themselves. And that way they would be able to control the gold trade. They'll be the middleman. They'll be the new middleman. So eventually they would go more inward from Morocco and they would land themselves in Ghana, mm-hmm. the Gold Coast. Yeah. Uh, this is where they would build a f- the first fortified trading post and they would start mines and they would exchange horses and grain for ivory, coral, and gold dust. So mm-hmm. half a ton of gold would arrive to Portugal per year. <laughs> now, this is another problem that arises from this. One age-old industry that was reinvigorated was, of course, uh, the slave trade. Mm. In antiquity, Europeans and Middle Eastern slaves had played a significant role in the Portuguese economy. Uh, they were used both for field labor and domestic services. So most of the slaves in Portugal were from Middle East, like North Africa or Europe. Mm. Uh, and for the most part, they had some human rights, if you really want to call it call it that. Like, for example, women were protected from by law by sexual advances from their masters. Um, I don't know if you can. For well, that no, time, no, I guess not, it, it was implied with did it was applied or not. That's a whole different debate. So, by contrast, African slaves who were being purchased to work sugarcane plantations in South Tome, which is an island off of Africa, and they were brought in for fruit plant, fruit plantations in southern Portugal. They had no rights because you know the whole thing. Yeah. yeah if race, if race. if they didn't convert to Christianity, do as well. You know. Yeah. For in 1455, Pope Nicholas V gave Portugal the right to continue the slave trade in West Africa, of course. under the provision that they convert all the people who were enslaved. You could enslave, 
but under the condition that those people who slave, you have to convert to become Christians. Yeah. Um, it, it's a weird absolution, huh? Absolutely, yeah. Absolving themselves, yeah. like uh, because you care, you converted them to Christianity. The sins of the slavery will go. Despite you owning a slave, at least you converted that slave. So to then that sin goes crazy. Portugal soon expanded their trade along the west coast of Africa, which means that they held a monopoly on the expeditions of Africa, right? So the king of Portugal at the time was pretty much in monopoly. And afterward, any ship sailing for Africa required authorization from the Portuguese crown. Wow. All slaves and goods brought back to Portugal were subject to duties and tariffs. Neither gold nor enslavement of West Africans made Portugal a superpower, though. Like, as much gold as they got, they were still not, like, the, the power. power. Yeah. They are just wealthy. But the shift did occur in late 15th century when Vasco da Gama made a trip around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and sailed into the Indian Ocean. He was aided, of course, by a pilot from the East African Sultan of Malindi, which is something we never studied about. Like when you study Vasco da Gama, yeah, they always him. You, you, they take out the part that like there was an East African who helped very him get there. Yeah, yeah, you don't talk about the people of the regions <clears throat> that helped. Yeah, Columbus or Magellan or any of them. Exactly, there had to be someone who's like who knows his way to the Indian Ocean. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, Eventually, the uh, what's it called? The Brendan Fraser to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. To Rachel Weisz, yeah, 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 100%. And the mummy. Although he was white too. Uh, the Benny, the American. <laughs> Even though he was white too. <laughs> but he had an accent. Hi, Benny! Looks to me like you're on the wrong side of the river! Shit! Oh, Connor. <laughs> it could have been Middle Eastern. Maybe. Vasco da Gama would, would eventually land in Calcut, Calicut. India by May 1498 and the rest they say is history right when it comes to that of course a future episode on exploration has to be done definitely uh, finally discovering the sea route to the Indies summer of 1499 he would return back with peppers cloves nutmeg cinnamon silks and porcelain to Europe and thus bringing the new world and ushering in 400 years of European domination and all its woes to the world as well as introducing palate to white people Yep. Spices. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Salt and pepper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joao II had turned down um, the chance to finance Christopher Columbus' expedition to the West Indies in 1492, losing out on an opportunity which eventually was seized by the Spanish. <laughs> Damn. Could have been Portugal. Yeah, imagine. Imagine how Portugal financed they that. They would have been a huge super... Even to claim an even greater portion of the Western Hemisphere. So Portugal was eventually able to break through, of course, with the capture of Brazil. Which I guess is like a gold a big mine. One, yeah. yeah, that's like a huge one. Yeah, and they pillaged it just like what they did with Africa. Yeah, but like imagine if you had been able to cause like coastal and northern America. Mexico as well. Mm. All, that, yeah. the, all the gold they would found in Mexico. What if, huh? So Portugal were able to break the monopoly of gold from the Middle East and North Africa. And now they were able to break spices from also the Middle East yeah, and Venice. Did. Venice was the controller of uh, trade in Venice. Because don't forget, if it goes through Italy from Middle East, Venice as a tariff. Yeah. It got to the point where the Venetians were buying peppers from Lisbon. So but in the 1500s, Portugal would become the most important nation, not only in Europe, but in the world. They got even stronger through diplo- diplomacy. And of course, because they fortified all their trade posts along the way, no matter where you were sailing, you had you met a Portuguese trade post and you had to pay tariffs. tariffs. So they yeah. made a lot of tariffs because they, they had a lot of hotspots. Parking much. duties kind of thing, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so if you, for example, if you landed in India, you're landing on the Portuguese port. 
Yeah, I got you. They should add this in Civ. Yeah, yeah. Owning ports. Owning ports. Yeah, that would be pretty... That would be really cool. Of course, the military garrison was there to defend and to benefit from its trading monopoly. One significant reason for Portugal's success... Portugal? For Portugal's success... Portugal. ...was all its potential rivals in Asia. So, for example, the Ming Dynasty of China, the Principalities of India, and the Shogun of Japan were either politically divided or in a state of decline. Yeah, convenience of time with these empires. Yeah, yeah. And this is a trigger warning. For the Muslim merchants at the time, their bodies were piled in the water uh, in the Indian of the Indian Ocean because the Portuguese would massacre them. The Portuguese captured the cities of Malacca and Goa, and they set up a string of trading ports across the region. So, of course, these were owned by Muslim traders who were trying to defend their city of Goa. Yeah, nine thousand Muslims would be uh, slain. That's crazy. And thrown into the statistics. Soon, all these ports would have to pay a duty to the crown of Portugal, and if not, then your ship would be shot down. The king of Manuel, who was the king Portuguese at the time, would move his palace to the riverside, so he would have a like on the port, so he would signify the dominance of the sea and also monitoring the fleets going in and out. Mm-hmm. He would le- later anoint himself as lord of the conquest, navigation, and commerce of Ethiopia, India, Arabia, and Persia. That was his oh, full title. It's a good CV. <laughs> yeah. On his LinkedIn. So this was considered, I guess... The golden age of Portugal, right? Portugal has sacrificed. Just dominating ports is such a unique strategy too. I don't think any other empire has done that. Exactly. And making Lisbon truly the city of the world. Yeah. Uh, merchants when, from Europe. No matter Europe, what kind of trade, Lisbon gets benefits so from. So you had mer- merchants from Europe coming into the city to buy spices and stuff. And you had merchants going there to that port, to that port and selling their items so it, it became a, like a cultural a yeah, commercial hub a good marketplace uh, of course the chief commodity at the time was pepper uh, resulting in 80% of the economy so the wow. 80% of the GDP came from pepper that's crazy uh, and don't forget that also Portugal sadly was also trading in a steady supply of African slaves prior to the Atlantic trade it would be Portugal would get slaves go back to Europe British Dutch Spanish would buy the slaves from, Port- from Portugal and then go to the Atlantic. Okay, and then they eventually cut Portugal out. And then that's that started the Atlantic trade, going down to Africa, taking them straight from Africa. So to, they realized, oh, the Portuguese found some good slaves, and that's yeah, that's crazy. So they decided to go to Africa, and then from Africa to the Atlantic. So they not only traded in goods and spices, and but people. and also human. Importantly, I mean, this is the downside, right? Not only African slaves as well, but they also started trading in slaves from Brazil, young boys from India and China too. Mm-hmm. To aid in running this empire, a new class of civil servants was being created, and this would create a new form of middle class, which would give birth to mercantilism, which would eventually lead to capitalism. Amazing. 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 <laughs> now, what what more good has Portugal done to this world? <laughs> yeah. Sla- yeah, it just shows you. Slavery. Cap- slavery and capitalism. Yeah. They never go hand in hand. Yeah. By 1578, King Sebastian I died of a fil- ill-fated attempt to capture Morocco. And the problem was that he was left without an heir. The family tree left to the Habsburgs of Spain. So it became under Spanish control. Oh, this no. was a problem because then Span- Spain took over all the ports. And this would be the case for 60 years. That's a good inheritance. See, so. now the plus side was the Portuguese merchants now could sell in Spanish land freely since they were a part of the same empire. Uh, and it shows you that really merchants slash capitalists don't really care about nationhood so much. Mm-hmm. It just cares about the bottom dollar. That but, hustle. Yeah, but at the same time, it meant that but now that put them in direct contention with the English and the Dutch because 
Portugal had peace treaties with them. And Spain, Spain was didn't. A, so Spain was always enemy number one for the Brits, right? Yeah, it was a rivaling nation. Yeah. So of course, then Portugal. I'm not, I'm going to skim through this to get to the main point. So Portugal would eventually in 1640 take back uh, its own independence under the under the king João the Fourth. They were finally able to get their independence from uh, Spain, and during a treaty, uh, they were able to secure back. Brazil, but of course the economy of Lisbon had suffered, and they needed something to turn it around. Right by the late ni- 1690s, everything changed when they stumbled upon a mountain of gold in Brazil that the P- Portuguese had plundered in excess, which meant more slaves had to be sent to excavate more, which led to also to an increase of tobacco and cattle ranching. By 1720s, the diamonds and emeralds that were discovered in Brazil were the sole obsession of the money-mad Portuguese, the wealthy Lisbonites or Lisbonians, <laughs> flaunted, Lisbonans. Lisbonans, uh, flaunted these new riches. And most shameless, of course, was that the monarchs themselves took 20% of all gold output. So whatever was produced of gold, they got 20% of. It's crazy. Joao V <laughs> would usher in the second golden age, and he modeled himself after Louis Fourteenth by living in absolute excess. And we're talking about like women, riches and power lisbotas lisbotas they have two nicknames the lisbon locals lisbotas or alpha alpha chinas yeah but they're called Lis- lisbotas can't you call them lisbonites no, lisboetas lisboetas Lis- lisbo then e-t-a-s lisbotas 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 okay lisbotas um and at that time also in a weird twist like most european monarchs uh, lisbon also was uh, religious a religious city, and the king was superstitiously religious as well. Of course. So Portugal, for the most part, and this is kind of important, Portugal had so many monks and priests that one scholar noted that Portugal was the most peace-ridden, peace, priest-ridden country in the world after Tibet. Shout out to Watson. 200,000 were priests. That's 10%. that's 10% of the nation who took the holy oath. That's a, lot. That's, a, that's a million percent. So, and these priests, of course, they would go across the world spreading Christianity as much as possible, which meant that also the Inquisition was running high in Portugal with many of the Jews, the Muslims, and whoever was deemed heretic rooted out and forced to convert. But of course, that didn't mean shit because they would have accused you yeah, that, oh, you converted on... What's different about the Portuguese empire was the different cultures and religions that they went through. Because like mm-hmm. in England, it's only like Protestant Catholic, right? Yeah. But he was like Christian. All the Abrahamic religions pretty much from duking it out as well. Yeah, because such a hub. And now, here's a weird uh, twist. So, Voltaire would write about the king. When he wanted a festival, he ordered a religious parade. When he wanted a new building, he built a convent. And when he wanted a mistress, he took a nun. Damn. Voltaire wasn't exaggerating. The king's choice for lovers were nuns, and he fathered dozens of children through nuns. Interesting. So they weren't nuns anymore. Mm. I don't know. And one of his kids would become a future, a future inquisitor. 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 Yeah. And a few. Yeah, and I mean, then there is a whole subgenre of that. <laughs> yep. So yeah. So you can see how Portugal was kind of growing, and it was a complex society, like born on like riches exploitation and this weird and yeah and and weird religiosity happening there you know by 1755 
it was the most populous city by even Madrid and Rome standard. You know what I mean? Okay. It was the indisputable center of the Catholic faith. It was the most religious city in the world. It was also the third busiest port in the world after London and Amsterdam, because, you know, they took it over during the Spanish invasion. Uh, it was the European entryway to the new world. It was also the center of the large global empire, and like it still had its places around the world. The Portuguese economy had, in fact, expanded continuously for 70 years with a low rate of inflation. Merchants from all over the world would go to Portugal and maintain such a large and robust commercial presence there because it's, the inflation was so low. Stable. It was very stable. Uh, there's a famous saying that said, he who never saw Lisbon never saw a good thing. Damn. Yeah. Of course, in 1749, the king would pass away and his son would take the mantle. And this takes us to the point where he built the opera house. Because his dad was religious. Exactly. The dad being the nun guy. Yeah. And in 1755, six years later, Lisbon would be dragged into the center of the world's events. Part two, the earthquake. You know something, earthquake? I remember what it felt like to be underneath your massive frame as you came crashing down on my ribcage. And I also remember you, Dino Bravo, and Jimmy Hart laughing out loud as they rolled me out in that stretcher, man. I remember the tears in the eyes of all my little holsters, wondering if this was really the end of Hulkamania. On 9.30 a.m. November 1st, 1755, 325 miles west of St. Vincent, Portugal, Captain Elizar Johnston of Boston quoted... Boston, America? Boston. I think there's another Boston somewhere in Europe. Felt his ship... Was he like Ben Affleck vibes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> just, just imagine Ben Affleck playing this captain, okay? Okay. Uh, he felt his, quote, he felt his ship shake very much two different times. The first shock lasted two or three minutes, and then three minutes later, a second shake was felt, which lasted for another two minutes. Yeah. 120 miles west of the Cape, another ship felt a jolt. 75 miles from southwest of Iberia, a tremor shook a ship called the Mary. Captain recalled that the compass started overturning. One ship sailing off the coast of Lisbon, 310 miles away, had their windows shattered. Initially believed that the ship had run to the ground. But then he saw something surprising. He saw that the water had risen up 30 feet in 20 minutes. Mm. All this happened in the sea. Okay? Tsunami stuff. 9.30 a.m. And this is now to explain what was happening. There was a dormant fault line, right, several miles off the coast of Cape St. Vincent, which suddenly exploded against across a 150 to 600 kilometer gash in the ocean floor, uh, which, of course, a gash drives upward a cold spring. So a vast shelf of rock and sediment produced a tremor nine or times more. People are saying it's nine times or more powerful than the SAR bomb, which is the world's largest thermonuclear bomb. And remember, we used to watch those clips. yeah. yeah. It was nine times stronger than wow. that. Over the next eight to ten minutes, the fault's hanging wall would surge two or more times on the seabed. All the evidence indicated that it was some, somewhere between 8.5 to 9.1 on the Richter scale. Sure. Just to give context, the Turkey one was 6.5, right? Was it 7? No, it's 6.5, I think. Well, the second one was. I don't know about the first one. I think the first one was 7 point I'll check something. now, but yeah. In the case of Lisbon, three massive underwater tremors raised the ocean floor approximately 10 meters. This produced three separate tsunami waves. 6.4 was the second one, sorry. 7.8. 7.8, see? So this was 8.5 to 9.1. So this created three separated tsunamis. The distance... And Lisbon's all over the sea, man. Yeah. yeah, so the distant cause of the Great Lisbon Earthquake was something called a mega thrust trembler, resulting from a reverse fault, which was a slow motion collision 
between the African and the Eurasian continental plates. So they collided, although both plates are moving eastward at the rate of one centimeter per year. But the African plate is also turning counterclockwise on the fixed rotation. And it was pointed several hundred meters west of the African continent. Thus, the both plates approaching each other at a speed of five millimeters per year. The result is an enormous friction and occasional earthquake. So that's why you had like slight earthquakes over like a hundred years. It was just them trying to like. And then so it's almost like two things rubbing on each other and things around it shaking. Yeah. So the result is like this enormous friction where the two plates find themselves in the greatest conflict, right? And this was notable on the coast of Portugal. Notable on the coast of Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> I, di- I didn't intend for that too. Yeah. yeah we're notable. Okay. It's the coast of Portugal. <laughs> After years of research, like the, the precise location of the earthquake hypercenter remains elusive and it's a subject of a lot of debates but it's consistently believed to be around several hundred miles west of saint vincent this is all 9 30 a.m this was all 9 30 so the great quake of 1755 did not arrive without warning a few days earlier like eight days earlier according to an account printed in germany mysterious black bugs started appearing and they have thought to have been hatched through an underground vapor like these bugs started appearing out of nowhere and they didn't know where they were coming from and also Peru would suffer a great Lima earthquake from 1746 and people would notice strange behaviors in animals. As As always. Yeah. At 8 o'clock in the morning of All Saints Day, November 1st, according to a newspaper report, the air became so dense along the coast of Naples that people could not see one another. And afterwards, the sea became disturbed as the water rose. Approximately 9 a.m., Mount Vesuvius became emit with smoke, leading more people to fear that there was going to be another earthquake, but then the smoke died down. On the morning of 11 of November 1755, the wells in Spain and Portugal ran dry. Rivers lost their current and they stopped moving altogether. In Lisbon, however, churches were brimming with believers at 9 o'clock in the morning. Because, of course, it was All Saints Day. So during the pop and splendor, people were listening to ceremonies. They were taking sacred testimonies of the saint. They asked the Lord for forgiveness, all that. You know what I mean? So they weren't really paying attention to what was happening outside. Around, yeah. Everyone was in churches. So when the crowd of people were making their way to high mass at 10 a.m., the morning of Saint Day was unusually a busy time. It was always busy. So much that the royal family bounced to a city called Belém, which is Portuguese for Bethlehem, uh, a private palace away from the courts so they could like avoid the crowd of the, the traffic. Yeah, the, the crowdness of the streets of the city. Uh, accounts of the first tremor reaching Lisbon's very, Lisbon's, <laughs> reaching Lisbon very, but it's mostly averages out at 9.45 a.m. That's when the capital started. On the same day? Yeah. That's when the so 9.30 was the water, 9.45? 5 is when they felt, okay. felt it. People heard a subterranean noise, uh, some kind of like rumbling or thunder. And then within seconds, the noise sounded like a deafening cannon. The first tremor caught the city by surprise. It threw all the church bells started ringing, tearing down buildings, and which lasted for two minutes. And then there was a pause for a minute. The second tremor started for 2.5 minutes. And again, it was followed by another minute of silence. And then the third tremor finally struck, which lasted to three to four minutes. And that was the destructor. Pulling down all the buildings that have been affected by the first two shakes. So if the first two shakes unstabilized the building, the third one brought it down. Uh, Almost certainly the first physical sensations was felt by all the inhabitants of Lisbon. Geologists would call the P-wave, which is a seismic disruptance that ripples through the earth at the speed of five kilometers per second Mm -hmm. and announced themselves in a kind of a sonic boom. 
So it would rattle windows, it would cause objects on tables and pictures frames to tremble. And then this is typically followed by something called the S wave. That's where the shake of the earth happens. Okay. You know what I mean? So you get like a terrible so the, boom. The, the, the P is the boom. The S, S is, is the, the tremor. Shake. Yeah. So that's how earthquakes work. You hear a boom and then you're followed by what's happening. The shake. So it's almost like an underground explosion of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. And then you feel the ripple of it. Exactly. In all likelihood, the ear-splitting noise was heard throughout the whole length of the earthquake. You just kept hearing like that boom sound. And then there were results of P and S earthquakes converting their energy. So it's usually like the sound converts the energy. You know what I mean? It's like, because these are energies, right? That mm. sound, the tremble, it's energy being released from the plates. Yeah. So the reason why it makes a sound is because it, trans- it, it converts the energy into acoustic waves. A Catholic priest who had witnessed the events that happened that day would later become the principal chronicler of the Lisbon earthquake, penning a 389-page account titled The History of the Destruction of the City of Lisbon. This is from his account. During the day, he attempted to escape the monastery corridor when the ceiling collapsed on him and he was buried under the rubble. And he would soon be found by fellow priests and trying to pull him out of the debris. His legs were crushed by a large boulder. And fearing that another future terror was about to happen, he asked the priests to confess and to take his confession. He's like, listen guys, this is the end. Let's just confess, you know what I mean? Before we lose. I'm sure they thought it was Armageddon. Yeah, before he ventured into the street. In Belem, the royal family escaped their palace, uh, largely unscathed. They fled with their nightgowns and they wanted to go back to the city. But unfortunately, the Riverside Palace suffered. It was destroyed. Though not complete, also the house of the government, the ambassadors was also com- were destroyed but not completely damaged. When the third and final tremor ended, a great cloud of dust enveloped the city, thrown into the air by the impact and concussion of collapsing structures. Structures collapsed, debris, yeah. yeah, turning a day into the night, what several people would call Egyptian darkness. Because of the... Biblical, tent, yeah. yeah. For several agonizing minutes, survivors choked on the nauseous, on the noxious, ga- noxious gas. It's always, they always say the aftermath of yeah. these, right? Imagine like sand, dirt, lime is all over the air and you're like breathing that shit in. Oh, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. People are choking on that. A great number of people died from suffocation. Mm-hmm. Many people were blinded, diso- disorientated and completely alone. Some people lost their family. They didn't know where they were. And some were left to wander if finally the earth had finally come to an end. Uh, after several minutes, the dust began to settle and the sun was able to break through. We went near two miles through the streets, wrote one eyewitness. Climbing over ruins of churches, houses, stepping over hundreds of dead bodies and dying people, killed by falling of buildings, carriages, mules, lying crushed, all crushed into pieces. The cities were covered with so many dead people, and dying people wrote the German mission that one was forced to walk over corpses. Shit. Once, uh, some other person reported that he saw carriages with six, four, and two horses harnessed to them, Shit. in which both of the animals and the humans were dead. Some other person recalled that coaches carts, horses, mules, oxen, some entirely half buried under the ground were yelling, crying out for help. Others were hurrying to save their lives. No no one had a care for their stock life. Uh, there was no distinction between sexes, ages, birth, fortunes, or unfortunate. Nothing was regarded. Everyone was just... Uh, one merchant saw shops with his, true keep, uh, with his shopkeepers buried within them. Some alive crying out of the ruins, others half buried, others with broken limbs, all begging for help. Crowds would pass them with, with the least no, notice or the sense of humanity. People were just like, they were not Running, happy. Yeah, mad, mad people, yeah. Yeah. 
A survivor recalled the na naked women and children covered in blood running down the street. Old men and women caked with dust running to and fro. Corpses disfigured by the death uh, spread across every street. And numbers of victims trapped under the ruins with no hope for rescue. Portuguese priests recalled creatures of both sexes groaning and crying on the ground. Some with their legs and arms crushed. Others with their heads split open uh, or their entire bodies crushed. Some who had escaped death under the rubble but remained trapped offered great sums of money to whoever could liberate them. Why did Lisbon experience so much destruction compared to other? Why was this such a massive destruction? It's because Lisbon was built on a medieval landfill. A couple of thousand years before, the land was like a creek that was formed between two small streams. So when the city expanded, the streams had been converted to a, a sewer uh, during the Middle Ages, which was later covered by foundation stakes that were driven into the soft sand. So the sand that the foundations were built upon the city were very soft. Okay. So once, um, so that's why it was so magnified when the earthquake hit because you already had a very weak foundation. foundation. They made a city out of something that wasn't built to be a city. Exactly. And for this reason, like Lisbon's churches and, and convents all suffered disproportionately uh, for the most part. And the opera, I'm sure, was destroyed. Yeah. You saw the picture. Well, what is of the picture? Yeah. What was left of the picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So also, a lot was reduced to rubble. Some schools were damaged, walls tore down. There was nothing that was left untouched for the most part. Like everything had felt something. You know what I mean? Even the buildings like this. I'm sure that was only like four minutes of. Four minutes of destruction, yeah. The animals of Lisbon also suffered perhaps more than their masters. Many were left in their stables. Many were left in the streets. Those were not perished. You would hear their wailing and, and screams across the city. Other animals were left tied and abandoned in days and weeks. Followed thousands of horses, donkeys, mules, and dogs would die from starvation. Sure. Tumblers, uh, as powerful as Lisbon earthquakes, are exceedingly rare. They only occur once to every 500 to 10,000 years. Eight point stuff. Mm. Over the course so you of. Imagine 7.8, how bad yeah. that is. Yeah. So, over the course of the day, the earthquake shook also other parts of the world, not only just Lisbon. It also shook. Also, in some areas of Spain, felt this. Sure, the borders. Uh, Costa de, de la Lu was severely destroyed. At 1010, the earthquake shook Madrid. Only, but only two people were, died from the process. The shocks were also felt throughout Europe, as far as Finland, and wow. in, yeah, and all the way in North in North Africa, all the way to Algeria. It's crazy. Uh, and according to some sources, Greenland also felt a tremor. Oh, that was a powerful. Yeah, one, huh? buildings in Marrakesh fell, complete ruin along uh, Morocco's Atlantic coast. So, such a city such as Safi, Tangier. All got the earthquake brought down an unknown amount of buildings and claimed hundreds of lives. Uh, at approximately 10.25 a.m., something happened in uh, Lisbon. So the waters of the Tagus River started to recede back into the ocean. And people were kind of like, they didn't know what was happening. Like in a few short minutes, it just left the riverbed and it was going back. Mm. So the ships along the river were kind of like stranded. Like a drought. Yeah. Uh, in the mud and the sand. So why was this happening? What no one in Lisbon had known in the time was they were witnessing something called the drawback phase before a tsunami. Oh, shit. So the rivers were going back like, into the it's ocean. It's almost like pulling in a water gun before you shoot. Mm -hmm. And you remember how, you know how waves work? Like it goes in and comes back, back out. And then a gigantic tsunami, which was approaching Lisbon at sure. a speed of 50 miles per hour, produced at the same time at the earthquake. So imagine. It was like being, while the earthquake was happening, this tsunami was being, being built up. Yeah, yeah, pumping up. Yeah, we call it a tele-tsunami or an ocean-wide tsunami. Kind of what it felt in Japan. Japan. Uh, it was one of the largest and most destructive and far-ranging of its kind in history. Comprised of three separate waves, each, according, each corresponding with a single earthquake tremor. 
So every time a tremor happened, it was building a second wave of tsunami. So it stretched had three tremors, yeah. Yeah, so it stretched from the center of its peak to the bottom and through at least 150 miles across the surface of the sea. From Alcantara to Belem, the water had reached up to the walls of farms and palaces and distances of more than 60 yards, leaving behind boats and ships that had once been in the water. The, the waves rushed in so rapidly, recorded an English merchant who was there at the time, that several persons on horsebacks were obliged to gallop as fast as possible to the upper grounds to, for fear of being carried off with the wave. Oh, yeah. The tsunami had smashed into coastal villages as well, but most of the severe damage was in Lisbon. Although the earthquake was felt throughout most of Spain, it was the tsunami that caused more deaths in Spain as well. In according Spain to as well? Yeah, according to official record, 61 Spaniards died from the earthquake. Because don't forget, Spain is also on the Atlantic. Yeah. So 61 people in Spain died from an earthquake. 1,214 would die from the tsunami sure. thereafter. Mm. And of course, things could only get worse because bad things happened in threes, right? Mm. All the candles that were being lit because it was All Saints Day, of course, during the earthquake, all fell. Fire. And caught onto a fire. The fires in Lisbon reached upon reaching temperatures of 1,000 degrees Celsius. And in the suffocating air. Yeah, exactly. And the fire devoured everything in its path. As the fire intensified, enormous quantities of hot ash were thrown hundreds of feet in the air it's above like the city. It's like a wildfire as well, yeah. And they were being scattered by the wind, you know, alighting roofs and churches and homes. And then you had homes. a lot of dust and uh, rubble. And other structures, and the glowing flakes would go from house to house to house. Man, for people who didn't know the science, which was everyone at the time, they probably thought it was the apocalypse. Yeah, like well, how else can you shake explain? fire and water? Like on, the only thing that was left was pretty much a trumpet. You know, and I mean, they already, had the, and they already had the black insects, the yeah. locusts, and then maybe even like when they heard the boom, this like the trumpet of Gabriel. You know, what I mean, like it's done. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. Um, which makes you think maybe the trumpet of Gabriel was some yeah. kind of boom sound from a volcano or something. Could be, man, like some bellow, mm. mm. some wail before something. So gardens, plazas, squares, and whatever like whatever was caught was caught on fire. The fire would eventually consume the palace. That's what destroyed the whole palace, and that would eventually destroy the opera too. Libraries were also full of manuscripts, travel logs of explorers. Everything. All caught, caught in the fire. And what part of history was taken out of that? Exactly. Um, so there was one question that we're supposed to ask. Who will save Lisbon now? Right? I guess part three and the last part, aftermath and its impacts. Enter Pombal. Enter Pombal? Enter Pombal. What, you don't think that's his name? I don't know. P-O-M-B-A-L. Okay, I'm with you. Pombal. Pombal found himself in the company of the king, Dom Jose, and priests and few high-ranking officials, right? Uh, the secretary of war for, Liz for Portugal was dead, and so was the king's counselor. They had died in the earthquake. Others, such as the high court judge, bounced, he disappeared, <laughs> and his high and his prime minister, Petro da Mota, was absent. Uh, he was aged and sickly, and was pretty much bedridden for the most part of the decade. So pretty much, he wouldn't be able to come during the earthquake. So noticing that there is a power vacuum, Pombal took command, and he was overly ambitious and ruthless, and he would become an important figure in shaping the future of Portugal. Mm -hmm. According to legend, uh, the king greeted Pombal with the question, "What is to be done?" To which he replied with, bury the dead and feed the living. Though this was, this was considered like, people say it's a Churchillian drift that someone else said that, but he got lumped with it. Yeah. yeah. But um, I don't know. Namor, the legend stuck. Namor said it. Said it. 
<laughs> yeah, no more. <laughs> like, <laughs> bury the dead and feed the living. Um, but the legend stuck anyway. He had already earned the king's confidence through his loyalty and endless drive and his ability to deal efficiently and swiftly when it comes to the matter of the state. And the thing is, he was also more worldly, having served as the ambassador to Britain and Austria before being promoted to the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs and War. But this coziness with the king drew the ire of Portugal's tiny but powerful aristocrats who were threatened by his domestic reform, domestic reforms, which also championed the interests of merchants and uh, the new urban bourgeoisies at the expense of the old nobility. He wanted to get rid of the old nobility. How did Pombal deal with the Lisbon earthquake? The first thing he did was to gather the army and sent them out to help, and he would make frequent trips to Lisbon himself to check on the damages. Very good move. He would rally the population, and he would shout orders to the army. Him and the king transformed the palace of farm da- okay look so there's a palace called farm down below um which is an interesting name for so a palace. random yeah. yeah so there was a pa- the palace of farm down below they transformed it to take in those uh, who were injured from the earthquake became the first the world's first ever or the earliest known medical tirage in the world where patients were sorted out by the severity of their injuries so they actually gave that property to the people to the people so they were quite pretty admirable in the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second course of action, of course, was for Pombal to bury the dead as soon as they can to avoid any outbreak of disease. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is why a plague never really broke post-earthquake in Lisbon. This guy which, knew what he was doing. He was, yeah, he knew. And good crisis manager. And anyone who was caught looting or committed a crime during that period was was hung two days later he began his efforts to ex- extinguish the fire that had already started and also there was another pressing concern how to feed 150,000 survivors of the earthquake oh yeah keep in mind so we said lisbon were uh portugal is about two million people right Two hundred thousand were living in lisbon right Fifty thousand people died Shit. that's quarter of the we'll, we'll come to the we'll come later on to the statistics of how many people died but this is usually the agreed-upon number. He commanded the nobility from the surrounding regions to gather as much bread as they can and to buy every bit of grain that they could afford. So he told the nobilities to get bread so they could feed the people of the city. Whatever grain they were getting from shipments from Agrad to save a portion for the people who were starving. Several aristocrats, including his brother, Pombal's brother, were dispatched to the city of Villanova to purchase wheat. Pombal then commanded the president of the Senate and various ministers to intercept foodstuffs at the city gates to distribute them to the 12 barrios in in ratios that corresponded to the size and needs of the population of those areas. He then sent soldiers to these barrios to ensure that the food was rationed accordingly and put to work and to make sure that any bakery that wasn't damaged to start firing up the oven. This guy is a legend, a hero. Uh, well, so make a movie with uh, Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah, with, star- with co-starring Ben Affleck <laughs> as the ship captain from Boston. Yeah, Boston. <laughs> like, you know those crisis movies with different people? Yeah, yeah. Dennis Quaid has to be in it. He's always in these... Cr- it can be somewhere, we'll figure it out. Yeah, like volcano style, but set in... Yo, why have they not made a disaster movie set back in those They eras? did Pompeii. Hmm? They did a period movie for Pom- about Pompeii. Really? Yeah. Oh no! If I didn't no, hear about it, on NBC action. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty sure it was a disaster. Uh, I watched when I was getting my hair cut. <laughs> okay, the, that's why famine never materialized in Lisbon as well. So he avoided two things: famine and plague, which is uh, surprisingly beneficial because I think, if I'm not mistaken, usually these plagues are usually the first thing to come after a huge fire or an earthquake because the city is overrun. Yeah, yeah. And the corpses are but not buried. He's managed to, to man that one. Yeah. 
on November 3rd and 4th. It's absurd uh, accuracy and no, he knew what he was doing. Exactly. On November 3rd and 4th, the Crown then ordered meat carts accompanied by guards and distributed to everyone on the fields. In early November, it had come to the king's attention, according to Pombal, that the bakers, shopkeepers, craftsmen, businessmen were abusing the disaster by charging higher prices for, go- for their goods and services. Demand and supply, right? In doing so, he told the king that they were acting against the law of God and king. That's what Pomba oh. said. He said the providence of, of the providence that the Lord has imposed. On November 4th, Pombal ordered the army to post signs and placards in every barrio announcing something called price controls. That there will be no bread, like none of these services will go above a certain price, uh, including food. They would henceforth be fixed at pre-earthquake levels. No, nice. no price is allowed. So no to, one's taking advantage. No one's taking advantage. On the other hand, um, imported goods would be admitted tax-free until the end of the month to allow them to easily flow. So even fish, before used to pay a heavy duty, the price would go down. Affordable for the survivors. See, so but then the problem is with with fixing prices. And example of today, when you when people want to fix prices, is that it discourages vendors from wanting to supply. You know what I mean? They're like, if I'm not profiting, why would I supply it? You know, I'm making it at a loss, you know? Of course, um, they're like, we're risking transport into disaster zones and we're not even getting the money for it, you know? And this like this situation was highlighted in Adam Smith, Wealth of the Nation. He's, his impact number one. Classic. Which came out in 1776. And he would use this example as an example of how the market should relegate the prices. If you left it to the market, it would eventually bring the price down. It would be expensive for a period and yeah. then go down. So, yeah, so this is, I guess, impact number one. It impacted an example from Wealth of the Nation. But the Senate also would try to revoke the price fixing, and they would, uh, which would make Pomba livid, and it would create more tension between him and the Senate, which mm-hmm. consisted of the rich. Another fact they had to deal with was po- depopulation. And that meant they didn't have enough, a steady supply of workers to clear and rebuild the city, right? Yeah. So what he did was he made sure that no one left the city. Anyone who was caught leaving the city would be arrested and brought back to work in a labor camp. Wow. So he didn't want them to go. No. Fine. Ten weeks after the disaster, Lisbon was uh, still like a little more than a ruin. Its commercial and political core was still non-existent. While the earthquake was catastrophic, it was the fire that caused the most damage at the time. According to Portugal's treasurer at the time, the loss of books of revenue and expenditure uh, were destroyed. So imagine all the money that you made and for the country was burnt. Yeah. So like, how will you, like the records you keep? Yeah, the checks and balances. Yeah, like this is the principal reason why the economic history of early Portugal, which is so fundamental to our understanding of the development of modern econ- economy, as we said with Adam Smith, has received little attention from scholars because there's no historical economy to base it off. The fire continued to burn, burn in some form or another for another six weeks. 59% of the Portugal's GDP was burnt in the fire. Institutions that had taken centuries to evolve got destroyed as well. Uh, Portugal's social, political, religious, and economic life in the second half of the 18th century was completely transformed at this point. While some countries have recovered from natural disasters that struck the heart of a national life, for example, Britain in 1666 uh, survived the Great Fire of London and nothing really changed. Mm. Portugal was hit with a once in a millennium catastrophe. The earthquake was so like that it had to change. You know what I mean? Like there's no coming back from it. You know, you can't go back to how the things were. Even the psychology, the psychological effect. Of a nation, yeah. Yeah. 
So, like I said, how many people have perished? It's believed to be about 20% of the population. It's crazy. Or about 40,000 people. 50, 40 to 50,000 people it's have crazy. died. Pombal saw this as an opportunity to transform, transform Portugal. Now, keep in mind, this is a guy who was in England and Austria. He was a part of something called the Royal Society. So he was acquainted with Newton, Bacon, Locke, and Descartes. He thought of like he thought that change does not come from the nobles but from the state, and he began to see the search as a backward, unproductive, a member of society. And he saw that the Jesuits' loyalty were not with the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, seditious. His main concern, of course, was that commerce and rationalization should be the way forward, and that Britain was able to dominate through commerce and rationalization. So he wanted to change Portugal's. Exactly. He wanted, to, he wanted to enter Portugal to the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. He also so he started putting bans on what like, priests could say. He started going after Jesuits. It's considered a second reign of terror. But the second reign of terror came in form of rational inquisition. So they arrested priests. Well, nuns, the opposite, yeah. And, yeah. It came Ro- like role the, reversed. Yeah, yeah how, the table, how the turntables, right? And the, one big thing about that is also he changed the way the neighborhoods were being built in Portugal. They start building it in grid formation and wider streets to avoid any problems with future earthquakes, right? Uh, and he made sure to fireproof the city. Ground floors were constructed with, va- with vaulted stone, not wood. And every basement had a fire break wall, which people could escape from. And fire pumps were installed next to every church to make sure that there would be fire pumps in every corner. So what was the impact of the earthquake? Devout Catholics at the time could no longer accept that divine retribution as the reason as to why so many people passed away, right? You can't just say, oh, this is God. God's will. Yeah, of Voltaire had used the earthquake as proof that has proved of that reason. He said that it shows, you know, I mean, that the church has no undisputed um, authority authority on human will and what's got the notion of God. Immanuel Kant also said that the earthquake demonstrated that the plant was indifferent to humans. I think it shook a lot of people's faith. Yeah. Uh, the ideas were also significant in the age that still clung to define and wrestle with the notion of science. So a lot of enlightenment thinkers would use the Portuguese earthquake. Like it looks science. It's science has doesn't care about Exactly. It. Like it's they're gonna come to they're gonna come to question the role of God the role of the universe famous uh, why would God let something like this happen to yeah, people yeah. who worship him yeah. this started thinking this all started expanding on Very after Nietzsche philosophy earthquake yeah. because everyone was reading about this earthquake this was after the printing press right yeah, yeah. Pompel also ordered the Portugal's bishops to distribute a questionnaire concerning the recent disaster and they had to complete it within a month and they had to answer the following questions what time did the earthquake of November 1st begin and how long did it last was it possible to perceive the tremor moving from one direction to another if it was from north to south or the opposite uh, how many ruins fell in that in the direction of north and south how many houses were destroyed who died and can the dead be distinguished did the sea recede and rise carvings open up the earth uh, what measures were immediately taken? What earthquakes occur ha- after the November 1st happened? Do you remember other earthquakes and what damages it caused? Was there food storages? If there was a fire, how long did it last? These questions would become the foundations of what would become seismology. Wow. So this was the first time seismology was taken into consideration. Well, based on everything you're saying, Portugal seemed pretty modern in its response. It's be- Pombal was pretty modern in Very his response. Very modern in how he responded. Very like 
a lot of these disasters the king just flee and nothing happens yeah but they actually got to work the king the them. king put him in charge like listen sort it out for me yeah i need to find something for yeah, this yeah they actually put in the work to fix it and he seemed like he had a good action plan for the most part pombal also backed the idea that it was uh, natural causes so he tried to search for natural causes for the earthquake what could have caused this earthquake So he didn't go in the whole divinity realm. No, he wanted to calm the fears of the people by saying like this happens naturally. It's not some end of the world. Like you did nothing wrong. Exactly, here. and he wanted to silence every earthquake preacher, like Gabriel Malgrida, the preacher we mentioned in the cold open who got executed, who, in his opinion, had taken advantage of the catastrophe to spread lies and expand his following. Two things that the great earthquake debate also reveals about the mid 18th century is first that the enlightenment ideas were widely more distributed than many have imagined. This idea was not only in Portugal but it was also spoken about in France, England, Germany. People were starting to say, "Okay, wait, there has to be the age of reason. Mm-hmm. There has to be a reason behind this, you know? What I mean, it can't just be everything's divine retribution." Yeah, yeah. And then one thing again we mentioned, Pombal gradually transformed the Inquisition by bringing it under state authority. So the Inquisition stopped becoming a religious authority to a state authority, virtually abolishing it it as an engine of religious thought control, but instead of using it against those who suspected of treason against the state. In a weird way, the Inquisition became a secret police, a Gestapo. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. In 1769, he appointed his own brother Paolo as the general of the Inquisition. to go look at look for these seditious priests who are speaking blasphemy. While this was happening, Pombal also ended their persecution of the Portuguese Jews uh, and to abo- and he abolished slavery in Portugal. Okay. Yeah. Oh, more, um, more brownie points. Yeah. yeah, but people say of course like people who want to diss him say that he just did it for economic benefit. Um, either way to Either way he ended slavery, you know what I mean? Yeah. He also crushed the Jew- Jesuits, he modernized Portuguese higher education, he encouraged the formation of strong trading companies to exploit the wealth of Brazil for Portugal's benefit. He also built Portugal's commercial empire again. At the same time, he also weakened the power of the aristocrats and established an efficient state police force and created them as his upper state of uh, apparatus of terror. Mm-hmm. So he had a reign of terror on the rich. It's like a dream guy. It's almost like Ivan Remember when Ivan yeah. just kept going after the rich people all the time? Yeah, yeah. He made many enemies. So when Jose the First died in 1777, uh, Pombal was immediately dismissed by the nobles. He was subjected to a long and brutal interrogation. Eventually, he was banished from the country in 1782. While Pombal is viewed by many Portuguese as a heroic figure who restored order and rebuilt Lisbon after disaster, some members of the Portuguese nobility have never forgotten his crimes against their ancestors and to this day they refer him to as Sebastião José they don't want to call him Pombal they won't give him the, the, the title yeah so of course what slowly did pass away in the wake of Lisbon disaster was the belief um, that the earthquake were, was an act of god on punishment of mankind this was like kind of the beginning of the end of that idea yeah where everything has to be science yeah, based, yeah. Uh, while the true physical origins would not be discovered for more than 200 years the earthquakes eventually Uh, lost its luster of being a supernatural significance to the majority of people in the West. The laying the groundwork for scientific so interest and everything was not an act of God. God no. So the scientific interest um, was a result of the aftermath of the Lisbon disaster. Now people want to look for scientific and answers. Geology, I'm sure, and all that. Exactly. Now, just to end it on a quick note, the earthquake would later fade from memory because after, soon after the earthquake, the Seven Years' War started. And this is why it's never brought up. By October 1931, the children of the Weimar Republic would learn about the disaster in a 20-minute radio broadcast 
by the Marxist culture critic Walter Benjamin. In 1945, Bernard Russell would write about it in the history of Western philosophy. He would talk about the impact of the earthquake. For many who experienced it firsthand, however, the trauma could never be overcome. After returning to Massachusetts, after his tenure as the British Consul in Lisbon, Sir Henry Franklin, every year at the anniversary of the earthquake, would hide in a special room in his house, okay? Uh, there, surrounded by damaged swords and his torn and bloody coat, uh, he would lock the door. He cut, closed the shutters and in the darkness, passed the rest of the day in prayer, fasting, and personal acts of humiliation. He never got over the earthquake. So, um, this was Lisbon's 1755 earthquake. Pretty impactful, influential. Yeah, so you can see it from this earthquake that um, it's really changed. I mean, the fact that it created the science of <laughs> studying earthquakes, yeah, earthquakes yeah. like the understanding of how seismology works. It was a combination of uh, technology, intellect, and a natural disaster. So, quick question. How do you feel about Pombal as a character? Like, yeah, he did all these, but the, his prosecution he, of... He seemed quite intense, though. I mean, like every dictator, he seemed like he had good intentions and he didn't seem like he had a long enough reign and he didn't have complete reign. He was still being checked by the king to a certain extent. So I think had he had complete reigns, he probably would have went far, far, too far, too far. He was on the cusp of it with some of the acts he did. But I think he was also the perfect person to respond to this disaster. Case in point, Portugal is good. Even though a lot of Portuguese don't like the architecture, but I mean like, you know, it's like brutalist structure. You know, but, it's like yeah. you don't have to like it, but it's substantial. They could have found a better person to f- do a short-term fix, but he probably wouldn't have been the best for a long-term mm. reign, which is what he did his part, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Any final takeaways? No, nah, just crazy times, and it shows how a lot, you know, hopefully with this earthquake, the ripple effects won't be as severe. Luckily, there are not as many fires, and it was just the earthquake. Yeah. Rather than the other threes, and yeah. Okay, guys, so just to end this quickly, like I said, we're not going to do a call of action tonight, uh, but we will hopefully give a shout out for all the people who lost their lives in the earthquakes in Turkey and in Syria. Hopefully everyone who's been who's stuck in rubbles or stuck on the ground or stuck everywhere, hopefully they would be they could be saved and families could get reunited. Um, like I said, I'll drop down in the descriptions a list of links where you could donate um, money to help victims of the earthquake and yeah and this was Lisbon's earthquake I hope it wasn't too scientific I tried so much not to keep on the science side and I think that's all just our wishes to all the lives that's been lost okay guys so have a good night and we'll see you when we see you what's happening and that is panic.